0: All right, everybody, let's go ahead and come on to order here. We've got several folks who are out of town today. Uh, the Ganino clan is up near Bear Lake um, trying to get a, a spike bowl. I, I don't know exactly what that means other than it's not a cow or another bull. Um, just two little spikes, I think, is the rule. Uh, Andrew, I think, is also doing the same. Um, and uh, Joe and Anna get back on Tuesday from their... Uh, from their month-long excursion to the southeast, so we do have several folks gone, but the show must go on, and so we're gonna pick up right where we left off. We do have a special, couple special things to say this morning, though. First of all, did everybody see the sighting on the house? Okay, I mean, it's done, like D-U-N done, and uh, it's spelled wrong if you missed that, also, I got a greasy spot on my shirt this morning. And Danielle was really bummed about that because she got this shirt for me and was excited, and then I ruined it, and it was on the way to church this morning, so just ignore it. Or I can just preach like this the whole time, okay, <laughs> which would probably be somewhat more distracting. Um, also, and so I was, I was chatting with Megan, and I'm like, it's kind of becoming real now that the siding is on it. It looks like a real home now, whereas before it was kind of looked like a big plywood box, um, but uh, now it's it's transforming before our eyes. Also, it is a special day for it is Kirby Lambert's seventy third birthday today. So everybody give Kirby a big round of applause. <laughs> Kirby was out on the siding. He did a lot. He did a lot of cutting, a lot of help with the siding this week, and uh, and then he even took the guys fishing, and uh, they managed to land three. They got a fourth one right up, and then lost it right at the last minute. But they were very excited, by the way about the fly fishing, and so that was a big deal. So thank you. Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. I told you last week that what we were going to try to do is work our way, Isaiah 40 through 66. Um, Just as a little background while you turn there, Isaiah 40 through 66 is a marvel. It's a literary masterpiece. The poetry that's involved, in fact, all of Isaiah 40, 41, 42, 43, 44 is a poem. It's not an entire poem. The poem breaks up at times, but Isaiah writes in beautiful Hebrew poetry. It's unfortunate that what makes it beautiful Hebrew poetry is almost impossible to bring over into English, which almost is probably not the right word. It is impossible to bring that beauty over into English, the 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 rhyme, the meter, the metaphor, the simile, the structure. Um, Hebrew poetry is based on a structure more than it is on rhyme. And so you have concepts that go and sort of uh, what they call it looks like a, like a wedge. And so you have point one, point one. And then in the second and second to last tier, you have two and two, and the, then you have three and three. And then the fourth point that may, is made is the middle tier. And so it, it looks kind of like a, like a sandwich. And uh, the Oreo filling is the most important part. And that's, it, it's called a chiasm. And this poem right here of Isaiah 41 is a, is a chiasm, with the central point being the main point. Um, and it, uh, it was considered a, a literary marvel of his time. The other thing that sets apart Isaiah 40 through 66 is not just the literary quality, but the prediction, the prediction that's offered. Isaiah is about to accurately predict the future, very specific future events in granular detail. And he's going to do so for events that are 150 years out. He's going to name world rulers by name that will, that will not come for 150 years. So astounding is this prediction that scholars who don't want to accept the authority of the Bible say that somebody after Isaiah's time wrote it under the name of Isaiah. Just so you know, the theory went that it was a person in the second or third century uh, before Christ came, so it would be second or third century BC, that a person writing under Isaiah's name predicted all of these events. This theory was accepted for virtually 100 years among biblical scholars. And then something happened. A young man, probably about 13 years old, was doing a very young man thing. He was a Bedouin boy living in the Middle East, uh, just outside of Jerusalem, and he was, like I said, doing a very little boy thing, and he was throwing rocks. <laughs> and one of his rocks soared up at a target and missed the target, and he heard, when the rock hit, instead of crack, he heard tsh- the shattering of something that sounded like glass. Glass. Well, that was a different sound, especially from a boy who'd grown accustomed to throwing rocks, and he clambered up the hill, and he discovered what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. He'd thrown a rock, and it hit one of the pots that the scrolls were in. In one of those pots was found a full Isaiah scroll, chapter 1 through 66, the way we would know it, though chapters didn't exist back then and the scroll was copied a couple centuries before the scholars said the book could have possibly been written. Does that make sense? The scroll was written and preserved in fourth or fifth century BC, while the scholars said that it couldn't have been written until the second or third century BC. And thus it totally blew the the liberal uh, scholarly opinion out of the water. They just couldn't recover from this. So specific and so accurate were Isaiah's predictions that those who didn't want to believe the Bible concluded this must have been a person looking backward on the events, not forward to them. that makes sense, everybody? Okay. It's in Isaiah 41 that Isaiah begins to tell this future story. Okay? Look right here at our... Second verse of Isaiah 41. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. Now let's go forward to verse 25. He says, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Two things to note about these verses. Number one, this future ruler is left anonymous. As a matter of fact, Isaiah isn't going to give us his name until chapter 44. Isaiah is going to build and build and build the suspense. Who could this ruler be who meets victory at every step? The second thing you might notice is that in one verse, he says that he's coming from the east, and then in the second verse, he says that he's coming out of the north. And so you might say, which is it? Are these two rulers? Or what's up with that? Why is one from the north and one from the east? Well, if you live in Cuba, what direction do hurricanes always come out of? The east. If you live in... Wilmington, North Carolina, which direction do hurricanes always come from? The south. (laughs) It's the same hurricane, but they always come east and then eventually at some point they turn north. Most hurricanes we never see or hear about because mid-Atlantic they go and make the northern, northern turn. It's the same thing in this ancient world. The land east of Jerusalem was impassable desert. You wouldn't want to take an army through it. Armies who tried to go through it regretted it. So they would come out of the east, which is where Cyrus would come from, out of the east, and they come east north of Jerusalem through what's called the Fertile Crescent, and then they hang a left and come out of the north and follow the Mediterranean on down. Does that make sense? So to say they're coming from the north or the east is the same thing, because they always follow that ancient highway. In fact. There's a highway there called the King's Highway that you can travel on today. It's an ancient road that goes all the way from Egypt up north, turns right through the Fertile Crescent over to Iran and Iraq and these eastern nations. So I hope that makes sense. What Isaiah is saying is there's somebody coming. There's somebody coming whom the Lord is going to appoint 150 years from now. We don't know that yet. But there's someone coming, and he's going to come from these eastern realms, and he's going to follow that ancient road. And people who read this would understand that perfectly, who read this for the first time. There's a conqueror coming from the ancient Near East. Ancient, yeah, the ancient Near East. And he's going to come and follow the road, and he's going to turn left and come south out of the north, and he's going to be victorious at every step. Now, naturally, you're going to ask yourself, who is it? Who is this person? Well, Isaiah is going to spend several chapters building that suspense. So if you want to look ahead, you can, but I'm not going to let you off the hook, okay? I'm going to let Isaiah build the suspense, and we're going to get it in time, okay? I'm going to try to let Isaiah help us out with that. Now, one last thing before we get into the technicalities of this passage Remember last week we said that what Isaiah is doing is preparing his people for disaster. A disaster is coming. King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. Remember, he predicts Babylon in chapter 39. He doesn't say it's Nebuchadnezzar, but he says Babylon. Babylon is going to carry you away, and that's the disaster. But in chapter 40, comfort comfort my people. And from 40 to 66 is comfort in the face of disaster. And what he's telling us, what he's beginning to tell us, is there's a comforter coming. There's a ruler from the east, from the north, who's going to come out of the north. This anonymous champion. And he's going to provide you comfort when I say he will. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. So this isn't Babylon, it's somebody else. And he's saying, you're not going to be in Babylon forever. I'm going to provide a deliverer. Okay? Now, Isaiah begins this comfort in chapter 40, like I said, and he continues it in chapter 41 with a whole separate poem. Isaiah 40 is a, is a poem that is essentially four stanzas long. Okay? So if you want to look at this very quickly, you might want to, Write it in your Bibles. Verses 1 through 7 is one part of the poem. Verses 8 through 13 are another part of the poem. 14 through 20 is the third part of the poem. And 21 through 29 is the fourth part of the poem. These stanzas, these sections of the poem... Each have their own comfort, okay? So the first stanza is an assurance for God's people. In fact, every stanza is an assurance for God's people who are facing disaster. And the first stanza gives this assurance, okay? It's this, your God is behind every geopolitical event. Your God is behind every geopolitical event. That's the first comfort that God gives His people here in this poem, verses one through eight, or verses yeah, verses one through seven rather. Your God is behind every geopolitical event. He says it right here, and like I said in verse uh, two, he says somebody's coming from the east, whom victory meets at every step. Verse three, he pursues them and passes on safely by the paths. Uh, who's, who has performed and done this? Uh, who's calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Now, if you want to write in your Bibles, you might want to insert a word because it's there in Hebrew. It's an emphasis. I myself am he. I myself. God says, I'm the one from the beginning. I'm the one from the end. I'm the one who does these things with absolute, utter sovereignty. I rule and reign as I see fit. And I myself, who know the beginning from the end, am calling this man out of the east to come and deliver you from your bondage. I'm doing that. Isaiah is going to go on that there are, there's a godly response to this, assurance, and then there's a pagan response to this assurance. The pagan response is verses 5 through 7. It says the coastlands, the nations, see, and they're afraid. The coastlands, they see this ruler coming, this ruler coming out of the east, taking the left turn, rolling with his armies down south, and they get afraid. They see what's happening, and it says that they turn to their gods, Verse 6, everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it can't be moved. Here they have to protect their gods. They have a god they have to protect. And Isaiah is deliberately building in some desperation here. You can imagine these workers of gold, soldering, putting this idol together, and they're all standing around saying to each other, it's good, it's good, it's good. Be strong. This ruler's coming. But this God that we just made with our hands, that we crafted out of gold and soldering, that we we have to nail down so the wind doesn't blow it over, that's going to save us. And what Isaiah is trying to show is this stark contrast between idols that can't see or hear or feel, idols that represent nothing, and the living God who actually creates these events and calls this shot ahead of time. We have been roundly delivered from this idolatry by being born and raised in our nation. How many of you have traveled to a nation that's overrun with idols and you've seen it with your own eyes? How many of you? Yeah, it's overwhelming, isn't it? It's absolutely pervasive. A few years ago, I got to go to China, and we hopped on a train, and we went all the way out to the western province near a town called, a major city it was called Lanzhou. There was a little city called Wu Wei. That's where we stayed. We went out, and we, we found these caves that were, that were carved out to represent a Buddha, giant. In fact, there's so many of these giant Buddhas carved into the rock that I had a hard time finding the one that I actually saw. The Buddha is sitting there and he's very tall. He carved out of the rock. He's carved out of limestone. And you walk down in front and they have to have attendants to shoo the birds off of Buddha so that they don't do what birds do and dishonor Buddha. Buddha is standing there. is 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 has the you know the very serene look on his face, and he's making this symbol with his thumb holding his um, ring finger like this, and it's out. and This is this is the symbol, the Buddhist symbol for fire, which promoted healthy weight gain, and to this day, uh, uh, priests. Uh, who practice Buddhism will tell you that if you just do this serenely for 20 minutes a day, your cholesterol will come down. Okay? So, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a medical doctor, but that doesn't seem to help your cholesterol to me. But we were toured out to this thing, and we, we stood in front of this statue, and the men were very proudly showing us their, their Buddha. Seemingly ignoring all the engineering and architecture that had to take place to preserve the Buddha from decay, from water streaming off and ruining the limestone carvings. Now, Granted, that is an old Buddha. He goes back to the 5th century AD. From a historical standpoint, it was cool. But that thing, as impressive as it is, has to be tended and kept and cared for our god who's unseen and invisible who's an invisible fire he needs no tending he needs no care he needs no help he is from the beginning he knows the end the reason this is a comfort he knows the beginning from the end is he's already stepped outside of time in history, and he knows what he's going to do. God is never taken by surprise because he made the end of the movie. Our God doesn't have to be... Those who follow our God don't have to encourage each other, for God is the one encouraging us. People who worship these pagan gods have to bolster themselves, and God says, let me be the one to bolster you. In fact, this whole poem takes place in a courtroom. Look at uh, the last section of verse 1. Let them approach, let them speak, let us together draw near for judgment. He says, come into my court and let me comfort you. Let me assure you. You don't have to utter vain things to each other. Number first comfort from Isaiah 41 is your God is behind every geopolitical event. Now, much like, uh, it's a bit legendary, you know, nobody knows if he actually did it or not, but how many of you have heard of Babe Ruth calling his shot? A uh, few of you. Babe Ruth was, uh, without question, the best baseball player of all time. He was the best hitter of all time and arguably the best pitcher of all time. People don't know that he started off as a pitcher and he was the best pitcher in baseball. And then finally the coach was like, wait a minute, when he pitches he only plays once every four or five days, but when he hits, and he's the best hitter that's ever lived, he plays every day. So they had him play every day. And Babe Ruth was in the All-Star game, supposedly the opposing pitcher had made him mad, and he pointed to the center field fence and said, I'm hitting the next one over that fence. And sure enough he did. Um, history doesn't know if he actually did it or not. He did point, people just don't know what he was pointing at. Okay. But this is God calling a shot. He says, I'm bringing a ruler out of the east, and he will deliver you from Babylon. It's quite a thing. All right, second assurance in verses 8 through 13. Second assurance. Your God is Israel's gracious Lord. Your God is Israel's gracious Lord. I want us to notice the terms he uses. He says, Jacob, whom I have chosen. God makes his choices, and that automatically means he's not going to go back on it. He says right here in verse 11 that there are some who are incensed against you, and they're going to strive against you, and they're going to contend with you. But I, the Lord, hold your right hand. I chose you and I'm not going back on it. He says that now, oftentimes when we think of God and his sovereignty and his might and power, we think of austerity and holiness. But I want you to notice how he classifies himself. He says, Behold, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, my friend. My friend. God wants us to know that we're on friendly terms. My son, my son Peyton, he was, he, he, he played on a, a soccer team when he was about five or six years old, and there was a player on his team named, named Sam. And Sam was the greatest six-year-old soccer player that has ever lived, I'm telling you. We would win games, I mean, they didn't keep score, but I kept score, and we would win games like 20 to nothing. Okay? Because Sam did Sam things. He would steal the ball from the opposing team. I called it the, I called it the Sam special. He, the other team would break away toward our goal, and Sam would run a big circle, and he would steal the ball, take the ball, run a big circle, and kick it into their goal. And he did this 20 times a game. Okay? <laughs> well, one day, we were playing a team, and the opposing coach had a strategy, that they would just foul Sam the entire game. A little desperate strategy for six-year-olds, but everywhere Sam went on the field, the, there were two players that would essentially tackle Sam. Okay? Well, Peyton, if he is anything, he is loyal, <laughs> okay? And about halfway through the game, Peyton ran up to one of the players and socked him, punched the kid. I was horrified, because Peyton's just this gentle lamb of a kid. And he stiffened his arms, and he bowed his back, and he said, stop messing with my friend. <laughs> Sam was his friend. And part of me was like, oh, man, Peyton's in trouble. But then another part of me was like, yeah, Peyton, get him. You know, like, they're playing dirty. Somebody needs to set the set the tone here, but that's Peyton. He's very loyal to his friends. To this day, he's a loyal kid. He's very loyal to his friends. And that's what God is trying to say here. You're my friend. You're my friend. And there's going to be people that come up against you. There's going to be people that dismay you, that strive against you. I'm your friend. Look at verse 13. I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand he's a God, he's a friend who takes us hand in hand. And he says, fear not, I am the one who helps you. No gods talked like this. This word helper, it's the same word that's used for the woman when she's created in Genesis 2 as a helper for the man. It was unfortunately became sort of a demeaning term to be a helper and not that it was used that way in genesis 2 but it came to be used that way and god allows himself to be brought down to that level and he says oh i'll help you i'll get down in the dirt with you i'll move side by side with you i'll take you by the hand don't be afraid I who control every geopolitical event, I'm your friend, and I'm favorably disposed toward you, I want to help you. It's remarkable. That's the second assurance. Third assurance. Third assurance, which is in verses 14 through 20. Your God will transform weakness to strength. Your God will transform weakness to strength. This is where the poem gets really good, okay? Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. Let's stop here. When you hear the word worm, what comes to your mind? Kevin. The lowest creature, the lowest creature. The lowest creature. yes. Who else? Weakness. Yes, what else? Gross. <laughs> How many of you think bait? Okay? Not Kirby, because he fishes with flies that he makes by hand. On spring days, when I'm... I don't, I don't like seeing things die, okay? On spring days, when we get a lot of rain, the parking lot fills up with, with night crawlers, with earthworms. And I go around the parking lot, picking them up and throwing them back into the grass. Otherwise, the birds are going to eat them. (laughs) And I just don't, I want to give them a fighting chance, okay? (laughs) Because I'm like, look, we put that parking lot there, you know, like the worms weren't bothering anybody. They were just happy under the ground doing their thing. We put, and now they're like, oh no. So I just toss them back in. I don't know if they appreciate it or not, but, you know, this is what I do. Well, a worm is incapable. You just think about the, it is amazingly mechanically, but you just think about how they move. They're rather helpless creatures at the mercy of birds and people and so forth. Look what God says. So that's the picture, not worthless, not worthless, not sinful or low that way, the, the image is helpless. You, Jacob, who's as helpless as an earthworm in the Fellowship Bible Church parking lot on a spring day. Okay? I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. Let's stop there. A threshing sledge was a giant rectangle that was made out of heavy timbers. The heavy timbers were connected together with spikes and held together with twine. They would jam sharp rocks, the type of volcanic rocks, they would jam sharp rocks into the wedges, into the openings of the timbers, so that it created this leveling agent. Much like today, we have the, the, um, the tills that go behind these giant tractors and just relentlessly, mercil- mercilessly till up the ground. And they would attach these sledges to teams of oxen and pull them across the field, and they would essentially wipe out everything that was underneath of them. And this is the picture. God says, though you, Jacob, are helpless as an earthworm, I, as your God who helps you, am going to turn you into this unstoppable force of a threshing sledge that will break up everything that you meet and underneath of you. I'll transform you into that. Now that's a pretty cool picture, isn't it? From the earthworm that you find in the field to the threshing sledge. God says, I will do that. I want us to keep going in this stanza of the poem. He says that when you're poor and needy and you seek water, he says there will be spots that are deserts and bare heights and dry land. And he says he's going to turn all of those into, into fountains and pools of water and springs of water. What was desert and wilderness, verse 19 He's going to turn into cedar and acacia and myrtle and olive. I want you to notice that a cedar was considered healthy for uh, shade. It provided refreshing on a hot desert day. The acacia and myrtle and olive, all of these were uh, trees that were hard to cultivate. They took years and years to, to develop. The fruits of these trees were not edible, but were rather medicinal. Uh, myrtle berries are used today as anti-inflammatories. Acacia was the same way. it was used for cleansing. It was used for medicinal purposes. And if I can't remember what medicine it's used in today, but it's still used today. Olive oil was used to treat everything from burns to scratches to um, conditioner for your hair. Um, for I, I have a blister on my finger, and I've been applying oil to it to keep it soft and and not cracking and red. And so God says, "What was a desert, dry wasteland, is now a place of shade and healing, and something that, for generations, was considered uninhabitable and wasted, is suddenly transformed." into a, a sort of garden scene that takes decades to cultivate and produce. God says he transforms it that way. Now, last comfort, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, 29. Your God tells the future. <laughs> your God, you could even insert a word there, your God tells the legitimate future. Okay. He says right here in verse 21, Set forth your case before the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring us and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Isaiah begins again to mock the false religions. Again, we are spared this in our nation, but if you were to go to this day and age, and you can read all about the ceremonies, um, let's take ancient Rome, for example, which was actually at its foundings right about when this was being written. Um, Every day, the priests would conduct complex ceremonies and if the signs showed evil they would basically call quits to the entire day the city would just stay closed because the portents were evil and it could be something as simple as they saw an eagle carrying a brown twig instead of a green twig or they would have a ceremony and the signs were good In fact, on the Ides of March, the day Julius Caesar was killed, uh, I think it was a dozen times the priests ran their their ceremonies and the portents came up evil. And what did Caesar tell them to do? Just keep doing it until you get a good one. (laughs) And finally he got a good one. And he said, okay, good, we got good signs, let's go. This is how it worked. If you didn't like what the gods told you, you just made the gods say something else. And Isaiah's mocking this. He says, tell me the future. Go ahead. Go ahead. Tell me what's going to happen. I've already told you that Babylon is going to carry you off in about 80 years. And I'm telling you now, he didn't say this part. We know this from other passages, that in about 70 years, something else is going to happen. And then about 700 years from now, something really important is going to happen. Behold, a virgin will conceive. And that young lady's offspring, about seven centuries from now, is going to be my servant, who doesn't lift up his voice. He doesn't cry aloud, but he's going to have his back bared, and he's going to become sin for us, even though he knew no sin. In other words, what Isaiah is doing is he's showing I tell the future this this God. Yahweh tells us what's going to happen. So that you see in these geopolitical events that my prediction is accurate. But that pales in comparison to my prediction of my coming servant who will pay for your sins he will become sin for you he will bear your penalty he will be my servant all of these world events are merely fodder to get us to believe the ultimate truth that god specifically called his shot in the person and work of the lord jesus christ Sometimes we get it backward. We think God gives us spiritual things to help us with the national and international things. Actually, quite the opposite is true. He gives us national and international things to point us in faith toward him and toward his son. Does that make sense, everybody? Now, you realize that when you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you came into relationship with this God who wants to transform your weakness into strength, who wants to be your helper, who will think nothing of transforming geopolitical events just for your little good. In fact, we're told in the book of Romans that he's doing just that for all of us right now. He's transforming world affairs so that he can do good for his people all the time. And he showed us these events ahead of time so that we would trust it when he tells us now. And so I hope as we move forward, your faith will be built in what God not only can do for you, but what he is doing for you and what he wants to do for you. So if you've come here this morning worried about events that you can't control, whether they be broader, national events, international events, or whether they be family events, things going on under your roof, or extended family, whether they be things in your job, your career, whatever it might be. God controls all of that. And he wants to take you by the hand and be your helper. He knows the beginning from the end. And he knows exactly how this is going to work for your good. Okay? So take great comfort in that. Father, would you help us to continue to exercise faith and trust in you? May we believe that he who called his shot so far into the future, who knows the beginning from the end, is in the here and now to help us and guide us and be our friend. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.